0: Good morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. Uh, we'll be in just the first five verses this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Mike Kesarowski. I'm one of the uh, pastors on staff here at FAC. Um, just a reminder that it is a James 5 Sunday. Uh, there are elders standing by to pray for you, and we would encourage you to take advantage of that. Um, all you have to do is exit out these back doors, and somebody uh, standing in the hallway actually has a James 5 uh, lanyard uh, badge, and they'd be happy to direct you. Uh, it's a wonderful ministry, and we'd encourage 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 you to take part in that. Um, If there's anything that you're going through that needs prayer, uh, we are here to pray for you. Um, Or if you just want an excuse to get out of this sermon, um, and you've already gone to the bathroom twice, uh, you can do that as well. Uh, It'd be be well worth your time. Uh, Let me also encourage you in our transition um, as we look to God's word week in week out to um, begin bringing your Bibles. Um, I, I would like to develop just a culture here that is in love with God's word and holding God's word and seeing God's word. And it's one thing to see the words up on the screen. It's a whole nother thing to hold and engage with personally God's living and breathing word. Um, as an illustration, it's a very poor one at that. Uh, I could show you a picture of puppies. Uh, and it would exude some kind of an emotion. Or I could take you to Mill Creek Mall to the pet store where you can play with puppies, and you can engage with them, and it brings so much more joy to interact with them, unless you hate puppies, uh, then there's other things wrong with you, I think. Um, in God's Word, once again, it's the difference between seeing the words, the text, merely seeing it, uh, and holding it, engaging with it interacting with it. And we, once again, would like to develop a culture of being in God's word. And so we'll read the first five verses of Joshua together. As John mentioned, we are going to start a new series today where we will go through the first six chapters up through the walls of Jericho. But we'll start right here. Chapter one, verse one. This is what it says. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses, assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray now as we enter into a time of studying your word and worshiping you through the preaching of your word, I pray, Father, um, that your spirit would engage our hearts. I recognize, Lord, that I am a mere man, and I pray that these would not be my own words, uh, but, but your words, Lord, that come from the very authority of Scripture. pray that you would bless our time as we reflect on your goodness to us. Amen. Um, Oswald Sanders has a famous book, uh, classic spiritual literature book called Spiritual Leadership. uh, And he has an entire chapter entitled Replacing Leaders that speaks to the uh, implications of transition. He opens the chapter by saying that the ultimate test of a person's leadership is the health of the organization uh, when the organizer is gone. Later on, he says that a work inspired by God and built on spiritual principles will survive the shock of leadership change and may even prosper as a result. Uh, He he goes on later in the chapter to uh, recount a story about A.B. Simpson, who is the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. He writes that towards the end of Simpson's life, he was at a uh, convention where a great New York minister, highly respected man, uh, observed that there was no one qualified to fill the leadership gap when A.B. Simpson was, uh, when his work was done. Um, in light of the leadership vacuum that would occur when Simpson did retire, the minister suggested that there be a, a large endowment established in order to ensure that the work of the alliance would continue. Sanders writes that Simpson didn't respond. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything in response. He believed that if his work was truly from God, nothing could dismantle it. And if it wasn't from God, then there was no good purpose in keeping it going. During the last months of his life, um, after he retired from leadership, uh, from the alliance, there were actually reports of increased missionary giving and increased progress on the mission field. The year after Simpson's death actually uh, proved to be one of the most prosperous years in the history of the alliance, of the alliance even to this day. Uh, today we're beginning a new series where we will walk, like I mentioned earlier, through the first six, or six chapters of Joshua. The book... Um, of Joshua tells how Israel navigated a major transitional, uh, for time of leadership from Moses to Joshua. Essentially, the book of Joshua is about, uh, new beginnings for the people of God. We here at FAC have a new beginning as we transition in our senior leadership. As we continue to search for a senior pastor, I believe that a study in the book of Joshua is just what we need. I think you will find that there are a lot of lessons to be learned from the Israelites in their time of transition. There's a lot that we can pull from and apply to our own transition. So let's dig in. Verse 1. The whole book of Joshua begins with a funeral. Moses was dead. A very pragmatic start. We're told that he's dead. It feels very emotionless. And it would be easy to pass over this uh, without thinking through its implications. But I would like to pause just for a moment to reflect on how the table is set here at the beginning of Joshua and how important Moses was as a character in Scripture. Moses is the main character running all the way from the beginning of Exodus to the end of Deuteronomy. At this point in Israel's history, um, Moses is the most important leadership figure that they have ever seen or known. Moses was the one that God gave his personal name to, Yahweh. Moses was the one that stood up to Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Moses was the one that led the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses was the one that led the Israelites across the Red Sea. Moses was the one who retrieved the Ten Commandments. Moses was the one who set up the tabernacle, which served as the uh, resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. Moses was the only one who actually saw God's glory for himself. Moses spoke with God. Even in our passage here, he's referred to as the servant of the Lord. It's easy to once over glance over that and not think much of it. But at this point in scripture, Moses is the only one who has ever been referenced as the servant of the Lord. And this title not only expresses the relationship of servanthood that Moses had to God, but it also expresses the deep Intimate personal relationship that God had with Moses. You don't have to look far to see how crystal clear it is how the Israelites felt toward Moses. Deuteronomy 3410, this is Moses' funeral where it's written that there has not arisen a prophet since, uh, since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses was incomparable. There was never anyone like Moses, and now Moses is dead. One commentator poses the question, what do you do when the very servant of God dies and a raging river lies between you and the land you are to inherit? What do you do, what do you have left when everything the first five books of the Bible has been preparing you for ends in a funeral? You must wait? No. You must panic? No. God says, arise and cross over. Enough said. Next man up. God doesn't even miss a beat. You see, Moses may die, but God's promises live on. So God turns his attention in verse 1 from Moses to Joshua. Joshua. So you say, Joshua, guess what? You're next. It's time. He turns his attention to Joshua, the son of Nun, and you have to imagine that this is an extremely intimidating prospect for Joshua, who has huge shoes to fill. One might say impossible shoes to fill. And so who is this Joshua? We know who Moses is. Who is this Joshua, son of Nun, who has the impossible task of following Moses' act? He's actually mentioned 27 times throughout the the first five books of the Bible to this point. And so there is a lot that we can know about him even before he enters as the leader of the Israelites so what I would like to do is just take a moment to set up a profile of Joshua, so to speak. I would like to answer the question, who is Joshua? Who is Joshua? And the purpose of this isn't only to be informative, but I want you to see who God has been preparing all of this time. I want you to recognize that that throughout all of Joshua's life, God has been in the background preparing him for such a time as this. Because God doesn't miss a beat. He knows exactly what he's doing. There are different experiences that Joshua has encountered his entire life, and they all prepare him for leadership. And so, uh, there's five roles that we can see Joshua fill before leading God's people. And to make it easy on you, they all start with the letter S. Um, I have not come up with these roles. I actually took these shamelessly from, uh, a guy named Warren Wearsby, who served as a senior pastor of, uh, the historic Moody Church in the seventies. Um, and, and it's too good not to, not to include. And so let's take a look at who is Joshua. First, we know that Joshua was a slave. Joshua was born into slavery in Egypt and actually given the birth name Hoshea. The name Hoshea literally means salvation. It's very, very general. But we find in numbers 13, verse 16, that Moses changes Hoshea's name and refers to him as Joshua. While Hoshea was very general and strictly meant salvation, the name Joshua was much more specific. It was altered the tiniest bit to mean the Lord is salvation. Yahweh saves. What Moses is doing with Joshua is once again becoming more specific. We're not just talking about any salvation. We're talking about salvation that comes from Yahweh himself. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew name Joshua is the equivalent of the Greek name Jesus. Jesus and Joshua bear the same name, just in a different language. God, Yahweh, the Lord saves. Because Joshua was born into slavery, he knew or at least had a taste of what the Israelites had been experiencing through this point. Joshua knows what it's like to feel pain. Joshua knows what it's like to experience suffering. He understands what it's like to be oppressed. But not only that, he would have also experienced the exodus from Egypt firsthand and all of God's power displayed. This would have included the 10 plagues that God brought upon Egypt. Joshua would have seen that firsthand. He would have experienced salvation, and it would have been very, very personal for Joshua, because we know from First Chronicles 7 that Joshua is listed as the firstborn son of Nun, which means that his very life was at risk during the 10th and final plague, which was the death of the firstborn. He had a front row seat to God's salvation. Joshua would have seen his father slaughter a spotless lamb on his behalf. Joshua would have seen his father paint the blood of the lamb on the doorpost for his sake. Joshua would have watched as the angel of death passed over his house. Joshua knew firsthand God's power and what he was capable of. Moving on, Joshua was not only a slave, but later in life, after the Exodus, Joshua became a soldier. Joshua's first official act uh, recorded in the Bible can actually be found in Exodus 17. This is about two months after Israel's exodus from Egypt. The Israelites come up against the Amalekites. Joshua is put directly in charge of the army and they prevail in their first battle. This was just the start and a foreshadowing of many great battles that Joshua was going to have to face and fight as they entered the promised land. He was a soldier. Third, Joshua was a servant. In Exodus 24, 13, Joshua is identified as, as Moses' servant. Now, this is different than a slave. Uh, th- this is more so an official assistant. He, he is, he becomes Moses' right-hand man. Joseph, Joseph, Joshua actually traveled with Moses a part of the way up of uh, Mount Sinai, where uh, Moses received the Ten Commandments. Joshua was uh, put, was tasked with guarding the tent that Moses used to commune with God. So not only was Joshua militarily intelligent, but he was also brought up under Moses' leadership, driven by God's word. As you study Joshua, as we walk through this book together, you will find that the secret to Joshua's victories was not in the handling of a sword But in the handling of God's word, how he treated the very word of God. He was a servant. He was also, number four, a spy. In Numbers 13, he was one of 12 men appointed by Moses to scope out the land of Canaan, which was promised to them by God. What they found when they went uh, into the land was that it was wonderful, it was great. But here's the problem. Canaan's inhabitants outnumbered the Israelites, both in strength and in number. And so 10 of the 12 spies come back and said, we can't go into the land. Uh, They're they're too big. They're too strong. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. Joshua and the other spy, Caleb, uh, were the only two men that said, while we're scared and while they are big, We need to go. We need to go in because God is on our side. And if God is for us, who can be possibly against us? See, the Canaanites were better armed. They were bigger physically. They lived in fortified cities while the Israelites lived in tents. Everything was stacked against Israel. The 10 spies were probably thinking, why on earth would we risk certain death if we can just stay in the wilderness and be fed by God? We are so small compared to them. The Israelites experienced what Erwin Lutzer, who's another pastor from the history of Moody Church, what he would call the grasshopper complex, this feeling of inferiority. Lutzer explains that the grasshopper complex makes us content with mediocrity and spiritual sterility ignoring those barriers that stand between us and spiritual growth initially seems more secure but is highly unrewarding many of us are content to stay in the wilderness many of us so often to choose comfort over growth God is calling us into something special that's right there. And instead, we fix our eyes on the raging Jordan River, the obstacles between us and God's purpose. We fix our eyes on those things and we say, nope, I'm good. I'm content to stay right here. While the 10 spies look at God through the lens of the obstacle Joshua looks at the obstacle through the lens of God. He knows that God's people live on promises, not explanations. Joshua knows that they're to go into the promised land, but the majority side with the ten spies because they were too afraid. Joshua and Caleb stand alone against the majority. This act of unbelief among the Israelites would delay the fulfillment of the promised land for another 40 years. And only Joshua and Caleb from that generation would be allowed to enter because they knew while the obstacles may be big, my God is bigger. And that finally brings us to the fifth role that Joshua served as successor. Joshua was a successor. God would actually be the one to appoint Joshua as Moses' successor in Numbers 27. It is crucial to see God's role in this. Yes, the baton is being passed from Moses to Joshua, but we have to take a step back and understand that God's the main character here. God is the one that is actually passing the baton from Moses to to Joshua. He's the one passing it. It's not taken by force by Joshua. It's not taken because Joshua has somehow manipulated the situation to be in the right place at the right time. No, this is not a power grab by any means. This is what God had in mind. This is so different and countercultural to our world right now. It seems like in business you have to do, it's it's cutthroat, You have to do whatever it takes to get yourself into a position so that leadership can can recognize you for the greatness that you really are, and then maybe, just maybe by sheer chance, you'll get that promotion. This is not how Scripture works. This is not how God works. God's call is vital, and we have to recognize that it's only God's call. In our transition, we have to understand that this isn't a matter of what we want but what God wants in our next leader. And we have to be open to the possibility that maybe, just maybe, what I want doesn't align with what God wants. And so we can either be frustrated or we can align our hearts with God's on the matter. Whoever our next senior pastor is must, it absolutely, he has to be chosen by God. And it is our responsibility as a body of believers to say, Lord, your will be done, not mine. We also see that throughout the entirety of scripture, uh, as God's handprint on Joshua's life is developing him into the man that God would, would use to lead his people into the promised land that God has been ordaining this moment far longer than the Israelites could have ever imagined. God's call to Joshua as successor when he told Joshua, your next came decades before Joshua even took the helm. And this teaches us that this is going to require some patience as we try to discern God's will. God didn't fulfill his promises and his word to Joshua in a single day. No, Joshua had to patiently wait for the, for decades on God's timing. You can imagine Joshua's frustration as he looks at the Israelites and says, you guys are a bunch of boneheads. Will you just let me, like, will you just listen to me? No, he had to be he had to be patient in God's timing. He needed to wait in God's timing. A few weeks ago, um, my family and I got to enjoy a vacation in Disney World. And if you've ever been there, you, you will know that there are a million things to be excited about. And there are a million things to be distracted by. And my kids, their eyes would light up and they'd go into the park and they'd want to go everywhere at once because there's the Dumbo ride over here and then there's this ride over here and then there's the teacups where we can throw up over here. And like, they're just so excited about everything that oftentimes they would get out of their stroller and run ahead of us and we would have to call out to them, hey, slow down, wait, because you're going the wrong way. They didn't know which way we were intending to go, but my wife and I did. They were too anxious. They were too excited to, 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 to get somewhere that they would often run ahead of us. And if they weren't careful, they were going to get lost. So many times in my own life, I try and run ahead of God. I try and, and, and run ahead of him. I'm not willing to wait on his timing. I'm not willing to be patient. And I get myself in trouble. As we look for a senior pastor, we must understand, first, that this is God's call. And second, we cannot run ahead of God. We have to go through the process. We have to ensure that the man who will stand in this pulpit is one chosen by God, because we can't afford it otherwise. In order to discern God's will, in order to clearly articulate God's will, we must be willing to wait on his timing. And here's the beauty about waiting on God. I'll admit it. God seems to take his time sometimes, setting the right pieces of the puzzle in place. He meticulously places each detail in its proper spot, and it sometimes feels like it takes forever. But when God is ready to move, boy does he move. Boy does he move. And we see this in the first five verses of Joshua, in his commissioning to Joshua. He doesn't waste any time with Joshua uh, to helping him deal with the reality and then setting the marching orders. Hey, Joshua, Moses is dead. Guess what? You're up. It's time to go. Arise. Get up. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving you. It is time to move. It's time to go into the land. It's time to fulfill my promises that I made to Abraham six centuries ago. This is a monumental moment for the Israelites. And I want you to notice something as we look at this text, something interesting and important about God's marching orders. Take a look at verse 2. In verse 2, he says, Go into the land I am giving you. This is a future tense. In the future, I am going to give it to you. But in verse three, God says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread, I have given you. This is past tense. See, there is a twofold feature to this commission. God is basically saying that this is a gift. I am giving you this land. The battle has already been won. The victory is mine. I've already won, uh, but you still have to take it. You still have to act in obedience and take it. You still have to trust me on my promises. You still have to move. You still have to take action. You still have to fight. You're going to fight. You're going to face hardship, but trust that my promise is good and that I have given it to you. I've given it all to you. Just be obedient and trust me, and you will reap the benefit. If you want to taste the fruit of my promises, get up and go. Let's move. You can stay in the wilderness, but if you cling to my promises, you will experience spiritual blessing beyond your wildest dreams. I know that it's scary to face change. I know that it's hard to face transition, to face a call to action, but we must remember that God's people live on promises, not explanations. God recognizes this. There is a fear of danger, a fear of failure that lurk in the scenes of Joshua 1. He recognizes this uh, in this commission, this call to action, that it may set fear and trembling in his people. And so he reminds them in verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Why? Because just as I was with Moses, I will also be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. To, to leave, what he means by I will not leave you, is that I will never be lax in my involvement with you. I will be vigorous. I will be vigorously by your side, and I will never relax from that. To never forsake you means to abandon. I will never abandon you. There will never be a day that I'm not here by your side, fighting on behalf of you. When I was in elementary school, my bus stop was visible from my house. And one morning, I sat reading uh, at the bus stop when the uh, neighborhood bully began poking my head and uh, picking on me. And I didn't feel like I could stand up to him at at all, so I just I just let him do it. Little did I know that my older brother, who was six years older than me in high school, was watching all of this go down from our house. And after about a minute, he couldn't take it anymore. And so he rushed out of the door, left it open, came running through the grass, grabbed this kid by the front of his shirt, got about an inch away from his face and said, you, I better never see you pick on my brother again or you're going to have to deal with me. You you better never cross my brother's path again or you're going to cross my path. And oh, to see the terror in this kid's eyes. (laughs) He never picked on me again. He never messed with me because I had an advocate in my brother. We have an advocate in God. Why could the Israelites cross the Jordan and charge into the promised land with confidence? Because they had a God who would never leave them or forsake them. Why can you take hold of God's promises with confidence? Why can you advance in God's will? with assurance? How can you wake up this morning to face another broken day, another sinful day, another terrible day? How can I get up and stare down hell itself because I have a God that will never leave me or forsake me? Because you have Christ, Christ himself, who overcame all of that in order to deliver you into a promised land, who uh, died for you in order to deliver on his promise. Christ who died so that you could have life. Christ who himself has told you elsewhere in Scripture that I will be with you. I will be your advocate. You see, there is a direct resemblance between God's commissioning of Joshua and Jesus' great commissioning of his followers. God tells Joshua to arise, get up and go. Go into the land I've given you and I will be with you because you are a people on mission. This is your mission. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 28, go, get up, arise, go into all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And I will be with you always because you are a people on a mission, a mission to declare to a broken and hurting and fallen world that there is a promise to cling to a promise given by God himself, that if you trust in Jesus, you will be saved. That if you trust in Jesus, you put your faith in him, you will experience the greatest reward imaginable. If you trust in Jesus, your life will be transformed. This is our mission, church. This is what we're called to. This is what we need to be about. In uh, Robert Hubbard's commentary on Joshua, he suggests that there are four types of churches. The first one that he explains is called a museum church. These resemble the ones like in Europe. They're, they're beautiful, they're gorgeous, but they're empty. No one goes there for worship. There's nothing to show but pieces of the past. There is no spiritual vitality in an empty museum church. Second, it's called a maintenance church. They do a little bit better, but it's barely hanging on. Their primary concern is mere survival. You know, they're fighting just to keep the doors open. If something doesn't radically change in a maintenance church, it will quickly become a museum church. Third, is a ministry church. This church, according to Hubbard, pursues genuine Christian ministry, but only to people already within the church. Um, It offers a full calendar of activities. It has a wonderful, great, loving staff, and it generously supports their people. This church is a great church, but it does lack one thing, and that is ministry contact with the people outside the church. They would much rather stay securely on this side of the Jordan than to cross over into different territory and engage people different from them. That is a ministry church. Finally, we have a mission church. This church cares for its own members and reaches across the aisle. This is a full service ministry that offers everything that the ministry church has to offer, but then also reaches out to serve its community and reach the lost, win the lost. It takes Jesus' command to go very seriously. We are at a pivotal moment in the life of FAC. If I am completely honest, just from my own self evaluation, I believe that FAC is a solid ministry church, and I believe that in some aspects, we are very much on the urge of becoming a mission church. This past week, there were four young girls who gave their life to Christ through the Teen Mops program. As we sit there are currently 26 people signed up for our intro to FAC class, which is the track towards membership. This past December, we welcomed 20 new members. And if all the members, if all the people signed up for the intro class right now go through, we'll have 26 new members. I had never even seen 20 new members in my time being here. There's a lot going on. And we are on the verge of becoming a mission church. However, if we don't pay attention and we're not intentional during this time of transition, it would be very easy for us to backslide and become a maintenance church. There is a reality, a sobering reality, that our church is not where we would like it to be as a leadership and as a people. If you look at the trends in attendance in this room, over the last several, several years, if you look at the trends in just financial health and giving, we have to be very, very careful because both of those are on a steady decline. And so we have to make some decisions. We potentially have to make some changes. We have to figure out, Lord, how can FAC become a mission church in order to avoid this we as a body believer of believers have to be on mission. Everything we do within these walls has to be about mission. Everything we do should overflow with mission. We have to move onward. And so consider this your rally cry. Consider this your rally cry. We have a mission statement here. It's to transform Erie. By introducing people to a transformational relationship with Jesus. That is our goal. Give them Jesus. And all that we do, give them Jesus. But in order to see that mission come to fruition, we, everybody, have to get a little uncomfortable. Just as the Israelites had to fight to take on the promised lands, the promised land, we have to get our hands a little dirty. We have to be willing to step out in trust out of our comfort zone and depend on God, that he's going to do a wonderful work, not just in the walls of FAC, but throughout Erie. Hubbard, in his commentary, makes the connection between the Israelites and the modern day church. And I'll close with this. He writes, fearful of the future... Many Israelites might secretly have preferred to admire the promised land from the safety of Transjordan rather than risk actually entering Canaan. Harsh as nomadic life was, at least it was familiar. Its dangers well known. It offered Israel a comfort zone to which they were long accustomed. The temptation to remain safely within a comfort zone also seduces Christians. At church, we tend to arrive about the same time, Park in the same parking space, sit in the same pew, and hang out with the same people. Church activities with church people tend to clog our calendars, leaving little or no time for contacts with non-church people. We obey the command to go, we go to church. I don't know about you, but that's extremely convicting in my own heart. See, I don't want to be a nice church that does nice things and has no real impact on Erie. Greg Steer, who's the leader, the founder of um, Dare to Share Ministries, which heads up the Lead the Cause event that we take our students to every single year, uh, likens uh, church missions sometimes to that of a 60-watt light bulb. You know, he'll say, a 60-watt light bulb is nice. It's effective to light up a small room. But that's really all that it does. So many churches, he says, are 60-watt are light bulb ministries. It does nice things, and it's somewhat effective to, to light up a room. But he says, I don't want our churches to be a 60-watt light bulb that only has minimal effect. I want churches to be like a laser that can cut through steel. And the only way that we're going to accomplish that is if we're on mission. I want FAC to be a church that is so compelled by Christ that we charge into our neighborhoods, we charge into our workplaces, we charge into the classrooms, we charge into the world on a mission to share about the sweet, transforming grace of Jesus Christ. Is it going to be hard? Absolutely. Is it very uncomfortable? Certainly. But Christ has called us to go And we can hold on to the promise that we aren't going alone. He is with us. Let's pray. Father, I wrestle with this so much in my own heart. And so I'm asking you, Lord, to convict me that my life would be one of mission. I pray that each and every single person that fills this room, Lord, would see that there's work to be done, that there's a mission to pursue, and they get to be a part of that. I thank you, Father, that you've promised us that while this isn't easy, that you'll be with us. So I ask, Father, that you would go before us, and you would prepare the hearts of those that need to hear about Jesus that need to be plugged in here at FAC, Lord. I thank you for involving us in this, in your work. I ask, Father, that you bless the offering that we're about to take, that these funds that are so graciously given by our people would be used to make Jesus' name known, and that he would be exalted and elevated. And In your holy name I pray. Amen.